Ecclesiastes 11. Send your bread on the surface of the waters, for after many days you may find it. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full, they will pour out rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening do not let your hand rest, because you don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see for the sun, to see the sun. Indeed, if a man lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile. Rejoice, young man, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh, because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. The next reading is from Ecclesiastes 12 on the next page. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind cease because they are few and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint, also they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper loses its spring and the caperberry has no effect. For man is headed to his eternal home and mourners will walk around in the street before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well and the dust returns to the earth as it once was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like goads and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. 
The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is, fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. If you know of the playwright Samuel Beckett, you'll either love him or you'll hate him. Uh, He wrote a play, a directed play called Breath. And it goes like this. The curtains are closed. And then they open to reveal a pile of rubbish in the middle of the stage. A single light beams down on this rubbish. There are no words. There are no actors. Just simply the sound. And then the curtains close. And that's it. Now, part of me loves that. And the other part of me, more the stingy part of me, thinks, I paid 50 bucks for that? But Samuel Beckett is really trying to convey what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to convey. That life is like a chasing after a wind. You think it's going to be great, and then it's a letdown. And we have seen, have we not, over the last six weeks... Uh, things that we run to, work and, uh, and money and wisdom and relationships, the things we thought would be satisfying and yet they've let us down. And tonight we come to the final frontier, the last topic to be covered, and that's the topic of death. Now you might be thinking, this is going to be pretty bleak, Right? And to be honest, the teacher is not afraid, he's not afraid to shy away from topics that we might be. He talks about topics head on, but he's also refreshingly real about death and how to live life well before you get there. So we're going to look at two things. Firstly, the reality of death, and then how to live life well in light of death. Firstly, the reality of death. It's obvious that we're all going to die. In chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, it says, Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate, and that is death. Look to the person next to you. Just look at them, this this side, this side. The person next to you, either side of you, you may have, you'll probably have a lot of things different. In in, in difference. You you know, different gender, different sexual orientation, different pay brackets, uh, different uh, suburbs, different footy teams, all these different things. But there's one thing you have definitely in common with the person next to you. You're going to die. I'm not much of a poetry lover, but I do like this poem. It's Death Lib by Steve Turner. It goes like this. The liberating thing about death is, is its fairness to women, its acceptance of blacks, and its special consideration for the sick. Governments can't ban it or the army defuse it. Judges can't jail it. Lawyers can't sue it. Capitalists can't bribe it, scientists can't quell it, nor can they disprove it. Doctors can't cure it, surgeons can't move it, Einstein can't halve it, and Guevara can't free it. The thing about debt is, 
we're all going to be it. That's a universal fact, but we sort of tend to ignore this one. We sort of, uh, it's a topic of conversation we don't go near. And uh, we've even changed sort of the word death to the departed or, or they're gone. And I think it's interesting. Death for most people around the world and throughout the centuries was a common reality of life. I was reading James Cook's biography over the summer, and there in the 1800s, one in four children died before the age of one. That was just, that was just life. But in our era, praise be to God, we live in a great era where there's health care and there's good doctors and there's immunizations. Uh, my daughters know three of their great-grandmothers. I never had that. We live in a great time, don't we not? Do we not? But the danger of, of our era is death becomes a, a taboo. We don't talk about it. And it's interesting, the teacher in chapter 7 gives a bit of advice. Uh, it might be a bit of unusual advice, but it's, it's a good, I think it's a good bit of advice. He says, one of the most beneficial things you can do in life is attend funerals. He says in chapter 7, verse 2, It is better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. What he's saying there is you're going to get more out of life. You're going to understand more about this life by going to funerals. Because there, when you're at a funeral, you see that loved one in the coffin. It's going to prompt you to ask, what is this life all about? Why am I here? Where am I going? What legacy do I want to live? I remember two funerals that had a big impact on me. The first is of a guy at my old church, Shane. Uh, Shane was a dad of six kids. And quite suddenly he was diagnosed with bowel cancer and five months later he passed away. He was a warden at the church and he was uh, uh, instrumental in the building of the new church building. The first time, however, he stepped foot in that building was in his coffin. And that was a harrowingly sad funeral. But that funeral was the turning point for a lot of men in the church, including myself. Because at that funeral we saw what we remember about Shane was not the fact that he had a great business, but the fact that he cared about his workers. It was not that he was well off financially, but that he invested in his children. Not that Shane was a good man, because he realized he wasn't good enough, but he trusted in Jesus to get him through the next life. That funeral, that moment, those couple of hours of weeping and remembering, Changed the lives of a number of men to this very day. The other funeral I remember is when my cousin Reese died about four or five years ago. Uh, my cousin Reese, uh, he uh, had a number of disabilities, uh, but he, in my Maltese loud extended family, right, uh, which is loud and it's an introvert's nightmare, but uh, he had a way of just silencing us all and bringing us all together. And he would make us all laugh, and somehow he'd get us to sing Barbara Streisand songs and Neil Diamond songs. I don't know how he did it, but he had this way that just brought us together. And when he died, tragically so, I was reminded at that funeral of disability, and it's not about what they're unable to do, but what they're able to do. 
And it just dawned on me that we as a family now are disabled in losing him. And we've never been the same since. You will learn so much from life by going to one good funeral than you ever will from a year's worth of birthday parties. What have you learned from funerals? But you don't have to go to a funeral to be reminded of the reality of death. Death has a way of reminding you that it's coming long before it does. In chapter 12, there's this beautiful poem, a poem about aging. It begins in the first couple of verses by painting a picture of winter. You know, we're experiencing it now. Winter sets in and things get bleak and dark and cold. And then it says in verse 3, On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, as age comes physically, you start to deteriorate. And because of that, things get scary. In verse 5, they're afraid of heights and the dangers on the road. And with aging, it says deafness comes. In verse 4, while the sound of the mill fades, and when one rises at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song grow faint. But it doesn't stop there. The almond tree blossoms, meaning gray hair comes. Some of us sooner rather than later. The grasshopper loses its spring, once fit and agile, now slow down to a shuffle. And the caper berry has no effect. This berry was regarded as the stimulus for appetite and, and sexual desire, and it goes and wanes. I remember talking to my granddad uh, about a couple of years ago, actually, before sort of the Alzheimer's hits. And uh, he was a Christian man, and I asked him, what, is he looking, what are you looking forward to heaven, granddad? And he said, I, he said, I'm just looking forward to being able to run, to be able to play golf and it doesn't hurt, to be able to remember to do things that were once normal. Because with age, things slow down. And can I just say, a number of you are involved in the James Milson uh, ministry here at church, where you go fortnightly to the retirement village just up the road, and you sit and you listen to people. People who are old, people often who've been abandoned by their family and friends. You've experienced a lot of loneliness, and you sit and you listen, and you care for them, and you respect them. That is a beautiful ministry, and I'm so glad that you're involved in it. And then at the end of the poem, in verse 7, it says, The dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. The slow decay ends up as dust, where we're no more. And it's a confronting end, isn't it, to the poem? It's a confronting end where prompts you to ask, well, if we came from dust and we end up as dust, then what does that make us? If we came from nothing and we end up as nothing, what does that mean? It's confronting to think about the reality of death should prompt you to ask, what is the significance of my life? Where am I going? What happens when my time is up? It's interesting at the beginning of the poem, there's a little line which I didn't read. It says this, chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Interestingly enough, Bono, 
uh, one of Bono's favorite books in the Bible is Ecclesiastes. And he says this. He loves it because it's a book about a character who wants to find out why he's alive and why he was created. He tries knowledge, he tries wealth, he tries experience, he tries everything. And you hurry to the end of the book to find out why. And it says, remember your creator. In a way, it's such a letdown. And yet it isn't. Here's why I agree with Bono. It's good to agree with Bono, but here's why I agree with Bono. Uh, You get to the end of the book and it sort of feels like a letdown, and yet it isn't. If you remember your creator, remember the fact that your creator created you. And sure, you came from dust and you'll end up as dust, but your significance is not from that. Your significance comes from the fact that the creator created you to be made in his image. That you're made out of matter, right? But what matters at the end of the day is God chose you out of all creation to have dignity and purpose and worth to reflect who God is. And if you remember your creator, the fact that your creator wanted you to be in relationship with him. And you know what we said to that? Nah, and we ran away. It's called sin. And the reason why there's death in this world is because death is a consequence of sin. Everyone dies because everyone's a sinner. Remember your creator. Now, the teacher knows all that, right? But he would have never guessed in a million years that the creator would one day become the redeemer. Where God, who created this world, will one day become one of his creations in Jesus Christ in order to renew, to restore remake this world, that Jesus Christ experienced death, the consequence of the fall, experienced death, and then what? Three days later, rose again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Easter Sunday, is the affirming act that death has not won. It lost. When it did battle with Jesus Christ, it lost. See, Jesus loved you so much and hated death so much that it drove him to experience death so that he could be the, as it were, death crusher, the death defeater. Which means that you can stare death in the eyes if you trust in Jesus and say, you have not won. You can, as it were, laugh at death and say, Where is your victory? Where is your sting, O death? Because as Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you trust in me, though you die, you will live. So remember your creator. That's the first point. The second point, how to live in light of death. So it's coming, right? How to live in this life. Two things the teacher says. First thing is, he says, know that death is coming, so be bold in this life. Take a risk. Now, before he says that, in chapter 11, in verse 1 and 2, he prefaces it by saying, uh, in verse 1, be generous, uh, the sort of phrase, floating, bread and floating the water is a phrase for generosity. Be generous with what you have. And then in verse 2, uh, basically, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify your investments, right? So be generous and be smart about your money. But 
take a risk in life. Why? Because verse 5, we don't know the work of God who makes everything. The, the future is a mystery. Who knows what's going to happen? You can't control the weather. You can't control the tomorrow. You can't control other people. You can't control the stock market or anything like that. So take a risk. In verse 4, it says, The one who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. So consumed by the, the what-ifs, the maybes. Well, what if it goes wrong? Paralyzed by fear or procrastination. But the teacher is saying, look, the reality is, verse 6, you don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or both of them will be equally good. The problem is we might be afraid to take a chance, to take a risk, because we want the perfect conditions to arise before we do so. We want the perfect conditions before we change jobs, before we ask that person out, before we invest in that business, before we turn that idea into reality? What is it in your life that you're afraid you want the perfect conditions before you do anything? For me, I was thinking about it this week. I often, when I'm talking to my skeptical uh, family and friends, want the perfect conditions before I bring up Jesus. And you know what? They're never going to come. You're never going to get the perfect conditions. So you know what you need to do? Take a step of faith. Trusting that God is in control, knowing I don't know the future, but He does. So take a risk in your life. What is it that you're thinking, maybe I should, shouldn't do it? The teacher's saying, death's coming, don't die wondering. The second practical thing the teacher says is, be joyful. Whatever situation you're in, young, old, rejoice. Now, he's not naive. He says, look, in being old and being young, there's good things and there's bad things. Uh, to those who are older, he says in verse 7 of chapter 11, light is sweet and it's pleasing from the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man lives many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness since they will be many. If you're older, the positive about living long, if you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the positive thing about living long is you've seen a lot of things. You might have seen great-grandchildren being born, or grandchildren being born. You might have uh, you've traveled the world, see friends come to faith, experience all sorts of things. But the downside of being old is there are many dark days where you've seen friends and family pass away, where you've seen... Uh, People walk away from the faith. You've seen relationships break down. There's good and there's bad in being old. And can I just say, those of you who are older Christians here, I won't say who you are, but you know who you are. Those of you who are older Christians here, who have understood that Jesus rose again and what that means for your life. What I love about you guys, and there's a number of you here, is that you, though your bodies are aging and that kind of thing, you have a youthful vigor about you. You live out, what does it says in, in Psalm 92, they will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green. And you're here, though you know the body's uh, decaying and that kind of thing, as 2 Corinthians, but you're being renewed inwardly day by day, and you're here with a passion. You're here to 
sit next to people who are younger than you and to love and to care for them, to uh, give them wisdom and saying that sticking with Jesus year after year after year is worth it. And I personally I want to say thank you. Thank you that you know who you are and many other people in this room know who you are. That you are spiritually a mother and a father to many of us here. As you've invested in us. So thank you. To young people, the teacher says in verse 9, Rejoice, young man, while you are young. And let your heart be glad in the days of your youth. And walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. He's saying, if you're young, be joyful. There's a lot to be joyful about when you're young, right? He's saying, run because you can. Do a backflip before your back goes. You know, eat what you want before you start having counting calories. You know, go be social before your doctor becomes your best friend. You know, just live life. Enjoy it. Because what? Youth and the prime of your life are fleeting. Remember when you're in school and, you know, you're sort of, you're four years old or you're five years old and you want to be six. You can't wait to be six. And then you're six. Oh, you're 12 years old and you can't wait to be a third. I'm a teenager. I'm 13. And then you're 17 and 17 and you want to be 18. And then all of a sudden you blink and you're an adult. It was gone. It's so quick. Youth is fleeting. Being young is a great thing. The downside, however, of being young is that often lack wisdom and understanding. You know, it's interesting. The frontal lobe of your brain is the last thing to develop, really, in your brain. Apparently, it develops, fully develops when you're 25. Now, if you don't know, the frontal part of your brain is the, the process, the planning, the consequence uh, part of your brain, the logic which explains probably a few people you know. Uh, and so it's interesting. That's why younger people tend to buy on impulse and then think about where they got the money later. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll do things now in the moment without thinking about the future. You know, think about the, the instant intimacy rather than the long-term commitment. And the teacher's saying, in your youth, in your enjoyment, uh, remember that God is judged, that your actions do matter, and you will give account. You can't blame the frontal part of your brain that is not developed yet. It's still developing. But the teacher is saying, enjoy life, but enjoy responsibly. I want to end by uh, telling you two stories. Two stories about two men who are different in almost every single way. One's young, one's old. Uh, Different nationalities, One's married, one's single. Different personalities, different in every way, except for the fact that they're both dead and they both trusted in Jesus. The first guy is John. Now, John uh, went to church all his life, but he always resisted Jesus. He sat in church, it was the done thing to do, but he always resisted Jesus. Until he, he was sitting on his couch one day, turned on TV. And this preacher, this Billy Graham, uh, started preaching a sermon. And about 20 minutes in, he started to cry. And his wife, Wendy, walked in and said, John, what, what's wrong? And he said through tears, I have given my life to Jesus. 
I have finally given my life to Jesus. The next morning, uh, Wendy woke up and noticed her husband was there in the bed and looked outside the window, and there he was in the garden, face down in the dirt, dead from a heart attack. He'd been Christian for less than 12 hours. The other guy is a guy called Tim. Uh, Tim was a Kiwi. Don't hold that against him. But Tim was a Kiwi, and he moved to Sydney. Uh, he was the life of the party. Everyone loved him. And he was a cartoon artist for Disney. So, you know, that's, that's pretty fun. And uh, so Tim uh, was a Christian, and Tim uh, started to get headaches, uh, sort of in his mid-20s, and went to the doctor, and there were tumors in his head. And they couldn't be removed, and they got worse, and they started to push on the communication parts of his brain. So he couldn't speak anymore. The only way he could communicate was through squeezing. His hands sort of A, B, C, etc. And on the night before he died, his Bible study was around him. And uh, one person asked, how are you feeling about seeing Jesus, about going to heaven? And he said through squeezes, I'm so excited. When you understand what Jesus has done, when you understand that death is no longer in shape because of that resurrection, then you have a new reality when it comes to death, a new perspective. That you don't have to fear it. That you don't have to ignore it. But that you can look death in the eye and almost be excited about it because you know it's not the end but the beginning. And you can live life now boldly and joyfully. So the question is for us all, is will you remember your Creator while you have breath in your lungs to do so? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know, though we don't like to admit it, that death is coming. We don't know when. We don't know how. But we pray, Lord God, that we would come to you, that you are the resurrection and the life. Maybe tonight for the first time, that we would put our trust in you, that you would take our fears away, because you are the death crusher, the death defeater, that you are victorious. And so we pray, we ask, we plead, that you would give us hope, in the face of death, and that we would live life boldly and joyfully. Amen.